Well, to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, as we look at a parable about prayer, dealing with a widow and an unjust judge. <clears throat> Luke, chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's word. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So ends the reading of God's word. My purpose in this sermon is very simple. My purpose is that you would be more persistent in your prayers and not lose heart. That's the purpose of the parable, as it says in verse 1. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Do you find it hard? Do you find it difficult to be persistent in prayers? Do you easily lose heart? The parable has two main characters. There's a widow and there's a judge. The widow's adversary is only mentioned. Widows in ancient Israel did not have an easy time of it. Therefore, God gave very protective laws in the Bible pertaining to widows. Deuteronomy chapter 27 places a curse on the man who withholds justice from a widow. Legally, the widow took the place of her deceased husband in court and supposedly and was supposed to be considered equal to a man. But despite all of this, widows were still mistreated, including this one. She is being mistreated, but she needs help. And apparently it's a money issue. She cannot afford a lawyer, so by herself she goes before this judge. And he's not a good judge. Look at how verse 2 describes him. He neither feared God nor respected man. This is not good. He doesn't care about religious principles of honesty and integrity and truth and mercy so forth. And he certainly doesn't care about public opinion. He could care less what anyone thought. He obviously was appointed for life. This widow goes to him, and she says, Give me justice against my neighbor. In other words, take up my case. Help me get justice. But the judge refuses. He does not care about her. He doesn't care about the situation. Apparently, there's nothing in this case that will benefit him. And so it appears that this widow is absolutely helpless in this situation. But the only weapon that the woman has is persistence. 
So she determines that she will keep going back. It doesn't tell us where it was every single day, whether it was a couple of times a week, but every opportunity she had, apparently she went and she took the same request. Give me justice against my neighbor. Now, as I was thinking about this parable, I don't know anything about the judge. Perhaps he was married. Perhaps he'd go home at the end of a long day. And his wife, as they would sit there and he would pick up the newspaper, she would say, well, how was your day, honey? And perhaps on that Monday, he said, well, it was fine. It was pretty typical. Usually riffraff, the usual number of people wanting something, something done for them. In fact, there was this woman, this widow, she came today. But I'm not doing anything for her. What's for supper? Tuesday, she's back. He goes home after work. How was your day, honey? Well, it was, it was pretty much the same. But you know what? That same woman came back again today. Wednesday, she's back again. Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday. Finally, it reaches the point. We don't know how much time has passed. How was your day, honey? It was miserable. This woman is going to wear me out. She's relentless. And the wife says, why don't you get rid of her? Life's too short. Why are you complicating things for yourself? And he says, you know, I'm going to do just that. And so he relents. He gives in to the woman's request, and he gives her the justice that she's asking for. Jesus says in verse 6, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And now comes the most important part of understanding this story. Because Jesus is going to compare the worst in man with the best in God. He says, if this heartless judge gave in to the widow's request, how much more will God, who is true and is honest and compassionate and is loving, how much more will God do for his own children? God cares for his children. He has a special interest for you, his children. The judge only gave her what she wanted to get her off his back. But God listens because he loves us. Now that's it. That's the parable. It's not long. It's really not complicated. Jesus is going to draw a few more observations and some lessons from the parable. One lesson is while we are awaiting the return of Christ, you and I as his children through faith in Christ should persist in prayer. We have the example of this woman. She came before the judge continually. She badgers him. She berates him. She makes sure he knows her need. She's persistent. She does not give up. Too often, I think, in the church, in our lives, we pray once about something, maybe twice, and we think, well, that's over with. That's my part. And I don't want to insult God. I don't want to keep going back and forth and bringing up the same thing. I mean, he's heard me. He knows everything. How many of us here this morning, and don't raise your hand, but I do want you to answer this in your own mind. How many of you here this morning perhaps have prayed for something? Prayed for something very significant, like the conversion of someone you love, or, or the healing of some illness or disease, or the revitalization of a damaged marriage, or renewal in the church, or the revival of our nation? And how many of you have prayed for something maybe something like that, for a week. Don't raise your hand. About for a month. 
How about for a year? Does anyone pray for anything for 30 years? 50 years? If you were to raise your hands, some of you would be raising them right now. Some of you have been very persistent about a few things. Maybe not many things, but a few things. But most of us, most of us, we pray about something a couple of times, unless it's a really emergency pressing need right in front of us. And then we just kind of either think, well, it's not going to make any difference. We lose heart. I don't think it's the natural bent of our hearts to pray with persistence. If it was, we wouldn't have such parables like this. We know that God does not want you and me to lose heart in prayer. He spoke often about persistence in prayer. Last week we looked at the parable where he told about the neighbor who needed three loaves at midnight. And he talked about expectancy in prayer. But we find many biblical characters who were very persistent in prayer. Let me tell you a few of those. In the book of Habakkuk, there that little book in the Old Testament, that prophet begins his prophecy with the question in chapter 1. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? How long, O Lord? He persisted in prayer. Daniel, the prophet who was delivered from the lion's den, he served the Lord while he was under the rule of a pagan king. You know long, do you know how long he waited for that pagan king to be converted? Forty years. Forty years. Sarah, who was the wife of Abraham, Abraham was a man God, God called 4,000 years ago, as I mentioned in the baptism earlier. Uh, here was a man that God promised that he and his wife Sarah would have a child, and from that child a great nation would come. Sarah waited for years, years for God to fill that promise. During Abraham's lifetime, God did not fulfill his promise to make Abraham a father of many nations. But he is still doing that today. The promise that he made to Abraham still goes on today. We find another woman in the Old Testament named Hannah. Hannah desperately wanted a child. And she went to the temple and she prayed for God to give her a child. She persisted in that prayer for years before God gave her the answer she was looking for. The psalmist in Psalm 69 says, Save me, O God, I am worn out calling for help. He has persisted in prayer. Often, those in the Bible who we look back to because of their faith did not receive immediate answers to prayer. Often those prayers came after years of persistence. I told you last week, reminded you of George Mueller, a man in England in the 1800s who ran an orphanage. We look back on him as a a great man of prayer. He saw over 50,000 specific answers to prayer in his lifetime. As a youngster, as as a teenager, he began to pray for the salvation of five of his friends. He prayed that his five friends would come to faith in Christ. And for the rest of his life, for 52 years, he never stopped praying. Now, one of those friends came to faith in Christ within two years after George Mueller began to pray for him. Ten years later, two more of them came to faith in Christ. But when George Mueller died, even though he persisted in prayer for 52 years, when he died, the remaining two of the five friends were still unconverted, unsaved. But you realize that just a few months after George Mueller died, 
Those two friends, those men, place their faith in Christ. So do not fear to be persistent in prayer. Do not tell yourself, well, God knows what I need, therefore it's almost an insult for me to bring it back up again. He wants you to persist. But it begs the question, why should we persist in prayer? Why does God want us to persist in prayer? Can't he do everything at the snap of a finger? He could make anything happen? What benefit is there? What purpose is there for us to persist in prayer? Well, the basic answer is because God may do something better. He may do something better than what you're asking for. A young couple comes to their pastor and they ask him to pray about a house they want to buy. They are convinced they have found the perfect home for their family, their young, growing family. It's in the right school zone. It's the right price, the right neighborhood. Everything is perfect. And so they say, please pray for us that God will work out all the final details so that this perfect house will be ours. But then the real estate agent calls to say that someone else has entered the picture. They've made a higher offer, the higher price, and they bought the house. And this couple is disillusioned. They're disappointed. They are crushed. Even in their faith, they are crushed. Then, two weeks later, the building inspector calls and says he's found all sorts of bad mold, faulty wiring, things that would have cost several thousand dollars to repair. And the couple realizes, oh, God spared us. God spared us from a financial, what could have been a financial disaster. They had prayed for the house. They had wanted the house. But God had something better than they had asked for. Some of God's greatest gifts come to us through what would seem to be unanswered prayer. And our persistence can help us discover that God blesses sometimes by not asking, answering what we're asking for. Let me try to explain this more. God may do something better because it's not limited by your time frame. God uses our persistence to provide blessings that require the passing of time. For example, you that are parents or grandparents, you pray for the spiritual growth of your children. Lord, give my son or daughter a heart for you, that they will grow in you, that they will desire to follow you, even as we prayed earlier for young Ford over there. Or we pray for revival in the church. These things only happen over time. They don't happen like that. It takes time for them to happen. And so by persisting in prayers for answers that require the passing of time, God is building in us a dependence of a continual need for him. And so it's better because it's not limited by our time frame. God may do something that is better because it's not limited by what we can see or that what we will even know about. One of my heroes in church history is Eric Little. He was the runner from Scotland in the 1924 Olympics, made famous by the movie Chariots of Fire that was somewhat uh, accurate, not completely. He did have an ambition in life. His greatest ambition was not to become a famous athlete, but to serve Christ as a missionary in China. His heart was for China because he'd been born to missionary parents in China. And so he prayed repeatedly and persistently a prayer that the Lord would use him to bring many people in Asia to saving faith in Christ. That was his persistent prayer. Lord, use me to bring many people in Asia to faith in Christ. Well, after the Olympics, Eric went to China 
but the results were somewhat weak. There was very little fruit. And then, if, if you know your history from that time, the Japanese invaded China, and Eric and many, many others were put into prison camps. He ultimately died in a prison camp from a brain tumor. Now, as we look back, where that prayer, Lord, use me to see many, many people in Asia reached for Christ. It might appear that that prayer went unanswered. If we just go with the time frame of Eric Little's life. But his death does not limit God, and it's not the end of the story. Many of the camp survivors wrote about how God used Eric Little in their lives. One wrote of how Eric maintained cheerfulness and tried to keep people's morale up. One prisoner was on the verge of taking his own life, and he decided not to because of his conversations with Eric Little. After he got out, he survived the prison camp. He became a trainer of hundreds of ministers and missionaries who took the gospel throughout Asia. Many of the children in the camp, and there were many, I've read where Eric Little would organize schools and sports teams. He really tried to focus on the children. One of those children, when he grew up, was Jim Taylor, the great-grandson of the missionary Hudson Taylor. Jim Taylor became the general director of Overseas Missionary Fellowship, focusing on Asia with 900 missionaries. Steve Metcalf was one of those. He went to serve in Japan as a missionary. And so Eric Little's prayer that he prayed persistently and repeatedly to be used by the Lord to bring many people to saving knowledge of Christ in Asia, did God answer that prayer? (laughs) Above and beyond what we could ask or think. He answered Eric's persistent prayer. But it was not according to Eric Little's timetable. And it was better. God may do something better because it's not limited by what we can think. When I was in high school and God began to work in my heart as a senior, a person gave me a book of sermons, a collection, one year of sermons by Charles Spurgeon. Now you have to understand, what I'm getting ready to tell you is I look back on is a night and day uh, Emmaus Road experience of conversion. I had not liked church at all as a child. My mother would force me and my sister to go to church. I didn't like the clothes like this that we wore that one day a week. I didn't like going to Sunday school classes because I knew nothing about the Bible, and inevitably they would ask questions, and I didn't know the answers, and then they'd call on us to pray. Oh, more. thought I'd have a heart attack, right? I didn't know how to pray. I didn't hear the Lord's Prayer until I was spending the night with some boys in the fifth grade. They never went to church, and they, they, the mom said, well, let's pray the Lord's Prayer, and I went, what's that? Never. They had taken me to a liberal Presbyterian church as a little boy. I never heard stuff like that. And so then Jim Baird becomes our pastor. I didn't, like, I didn't know it at that time, but he was preaching the Bible. I, I couldn't understand it. And so in my high school, when I, God began to work in my life, and this pastor gives me a collection of one year of sermons of Charles Spurgeon in Victorian English, and I go home and I start reading these things. I, that's almost unimaginable to me. That here was this high school kid that, that looked forward each day to spending about 40 minutes to read one of these sermons. Well, in Spurgeon's sermons, and he, he died in, in around 1890 or so, so his main ministry was about 50 years, from late 30s to up to late 80s in London. 
Often in the collections of sermons, there would be the pastoral prayer that day. Well, I would read these prayers, and a frequent, persistent request was that God would reach with the gospel the Mohammedans. Y'all still with me? I mean, I'm a high school student. I don't know what the, who the Mohammedans are. I didn't know if it was related to boxing. <laughs> I knew who Muhammad Ali was. I knew, but this was pre-any knowledge of Islam. I mean, a high school. And so almost, almost, not in every prayer, but regularly, persistently, Charles Spurgeon, the preacher in London, in front of the largest congregation in the world, there were 6,000 people there each Sunday, sometimes 10,000 people at that. That was the megachurch, the world's first megachurch, you might say, in London. He's preaching that God would send forth the missionaries to the foreign lands to reach the Mohammedans. Now you see the irony. Where was Spurgeon? London, 1850s. If you go to London today, what do you find? 1,800 mosques. The church is practically non-existent as far as any kind of life. Did, did God hear... That Baptist preacher and the thousands of congregants' prayer, prayers, persistent prayers to reach the, the Muslims with the gospel? It would appear not, wouldn't it? We know about London. We know how highly organized the Islamic political movement is there to pass legislation to favor Islam, heavily funded by all wealthy countries. They have sent missionaries there specifically to win England for Islam. So were Spurgeon's persistent prayers wasted? Let me show you something. Let me explain to you something. Uh, it would appear that way. Islam began on a timeline around 625 A.D. Charles Spurgeon was praying around 1850. From 625 to 1900, 1300 years or so, there was really no aggressive evangelistic outreach to the Muslim world. Beginning in 1900, we have the first real intentional missionaries going to reach Muslims. From 1900 till about 1970, probably more missionaries and their children were killed doing that than there were converts from the Islamic community. But guess what's happened in the last 30 years? From 1975 to around 2012, we're told by those who seem to know that more Muslims have converted to Christianity in that 30 years than in all this time before, from 1900 back to 625. Is God limited by our time frame? To some of you that, young person, high school student that just began walking with Christ this year, your heart's been changed, you love him, you want to follow him, do you think that happened in a vacuum? Don't you think that maybe the prayers of your great-grandmama from 80 years ago and she prayed that God would touch the hearts of her descendants. God is not limited in our persistency by our time frame. By you persisting in prayer, God works in you. When you and I persist in prayer, a, a request over and over and over, it creates Christ-likeness in us. It molds us to the image of Christ. It helps to do away with distractions. It deepens our dependence on Him. It causes us to grow in Christ. It renews our heart. And it refines our prayers. Let me give you an example of how God uses persistence in a prayer. Maybe you've had a life-controlling circumstance. Maybe a bad one. Maybe you were abused. 
as a child in some way, maybe horribly, and you're scarred for life. Yeah, and God, the gospel covers it, but you still live with the consequences of it. Maybe it was something else. It it could be anything, but it's something you pray about on a regular basis. And I look back now, 15 years of praying for our son who's disabled. Allow me to share my own experience. So as I've prayed that, I have to look at my own motives. Well, why do I pray these things? This forces me to look at Scripture, and I've done so about healing. I would not have learned the things I know about biblical healing had this not happened. Had God answered the prayer immediately, right at the beginning, uh, these results would not have happened. I have learned to be empathetic for people in similar situations where there was no empathy or even any consciousness of it before. Now when I talk to somebody and they're a caretaker, they're a caregiver for, for any type of person, we connect immediately. I understand some of the things they're talking about. I've learned to love this son in a disabled state. What do you think that's taught me? It's helped me to understand God's love for me in my disabled state. And the church in its disabled state. I see the Lord use this boy to start conversations about ultimate issues. Complete strangers will walk up and begin talking to you like you've known them all your life. So my perspective on life is slowly changing. It's growing more and more in line with God's will. What has brought that about? Persistence in prayer. If you don't persist in prayer, these things often don't happen. If there had been an immediate answer, none of those things would have occurred. I'm out of time. I want to close with some words from R.C. Sproul's excellent book. And I use it, but I never look at the title. I think it's A Daily Walk with Christ in the Gospel of Luke. It's a devotional commentary on the book of Luke. It's about that thick. Excellent book. I highly recommend it to you. And he says this because at the end of the passage, Jesus is obviously talking about the return. When he returns, will he find faith on the earth? So there's the general persistence in prayer, but especially prayer prayer by people who are being persecuted and afflicted and they're suffering. So here's what R.C. Sproul says about that. He says, at the end of verse 8, Jesus asked an unusual question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, when Jesus returns to earth, will he find a generation like the faithless Pharisees, or will he find his church full of faith? We know that the Bible says when Jesus comes back, the strength and faith of his people will be at a low ebb. And then he says this, R.C. Sproul said, Some historians have noted that our day is one of the most difficult in church history. I read that twice. I said, what? We're not not in America. We're not suffering. But here's what he said. Some historians have noted that our day is one of the most difficult in church history in terms of the vitality of the church, of not seeing the Holy Spirit's power like other times in church history has been manifest. The church today, often in the West especially, is not marked so much by faithfulness as by faithlessness. And so we need this parable. We need this lesson. Because we want to know that when Christ returns, that he will find faith in us. Looking to him with persistent prayer. Are you persistent in your prayers? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that you hear us. Thank you that you work on our behalf. 
Forgive our faithlessness. Forgive our pessimism. Forgive our constitution that we, from which we so easily lose hope in you. We pray that we would be men and women who eagerly await your return and who are persistent and watchful until that happens. In Jesus' name, amen.